Ladies and gentlemen, this is your places call. All right, everybody, back to one. Stand by lights one and sound one. Camera speeding. Audio speeding. Lights and sound. Go. And action. Hello there. Welcome hey. back. Hey, welcome back to Pretend World's Real People. We are now on episode four. That's super exciting. Oh my gosh, we are on episode four. And we've talked to one person and now we've yeah. talked to another person. Or we're going to talk we're to going another We're going to talk to another person. <laughs> And this week it's uh, a theater person, and actually yes. it's a theater person that's one of my personal favorite people. Um, we'd like to welcome to the show Miss Katie Treadway. Hi, Katie. Hi, Steph. <laughs> Hi, Tyler. Hey, Katie. <laughs> um, and just for listeners to know now, I've known uh, KT since we I was a sophomore in high school, so it's been over 15 years. She was oh, a freshman, wow. and I call her KT um because that was a thing that started in high school it's not a long story but it's not an important one (laughs) stephanie is the only person in the world allowed to call me that yeah yeah i was about to say well how do you feel about that (laughs) she can call me whatever she wants i just asked to be introduced as katie (laughs) exactly which is what i did (laughs) but you've had like a thousand nicknames i feel like i have i was katie in high school or all right, that yeah. was yeah. That um, was when we were really lazy. <laughs> uh, okay, it's abbreviated. Yes, <laughs> it is because it's also my initials. So yeah. Katie also oh. happens to be KT, which is Katie Treadway. Yeah. Um, and then I was Treads in college. Right. Right. Because oh, there were a lot of Katie's. Yeah. yeah. Like my teachers yeah. called me Treads. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> like my name. That was my name. Yeah. Um, and then, and then in after college, I'm Katie. Yeah. Um. So it's only three. It's like three names, but from three distinct parts of my life. Yeah. And the rule is the same for all of them. The people who met me that way are allowed to call me that. Right. And like their significant other because right. that's how they refer to me. But yeah. other people, they they need to introduce me as Katie. As Katie. Yeah. Makes sense. That's yeah. fair. That's that's the adult name. <laughs> it's, um, it's also like the, especially in professional settings, it's like, yes. you know, that's, that's the professional yes, name. Yes, exactly. That's fair. Yeah. All right. Well, um, Miss KT, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and why you think we've asked you on this show? <laughs> all, all excellent questions. Um, <laughs> so I am a, uh, when I'm feeling really confident about it, I just say I'm a puppeteer. Mm-hmm. Um, when I feel like I need to like give it a little more context, I say I'm a theater maker and puppeteer. Um, but I've been uh, sort of come up through theater in a relatively traditional way, high school, drama club, um, theater and literature major at a liberal arts college, and then moving to Boston um, and trying my hand at, at first acting and costume designing. Mm-hmm. Quickly realized that if you bill yourself as a technician of any kind, designer or technician, no one's ever gonna call you to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is unfortunate. Just- Cause she's great at both. <laughs> <laughs> um, just cause there's less, there's less designers, less technicians, right. um, a lot sense. more actors. Right. That makes sense. So I, I kind of stopped costume designing. Um, it was also not costume designing in college. I found was very different than costume designing in, um, a real world setting, especially mm. in a smaller theater setting where concept was subservient to mm. budget. Uh-huh. Um, and also possibly to, I found a couple of um, times I collaborated with people, they had an idea and they wanted me to execute it rather uh-huh. than sort of, rather than what I had 
been learning in college, which was right. like highly collaborative um, process. So I wasn't having as much fun. Um, I had success as an actor in like, you know, the way that you have success in a fringe, small company setting. Um, I worked for three years at the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum as a historical interpreter, mm-hmm. um, which was fun and <laughs> taught, taught me a lot about like uh, what it means to be in front of an audience like four times yeah. a day. Yeah. Um, and then and I... Can you explain that role actually a little bit more for sure. people who are super curious? Because it's one yeah. of, for me, it's like one of those jobs where I'm like, how does someone do this? Like, who just like wanders into the Tea Party Museum and is like, hey. Well, they put out a job notice slash casting call. Okay. So they were um, specifically looking for actors. Okay. Or people who were interested in performing. You didn't okay. have to have an acting background. So I went in and my job interview was a, uh, I did a monologue. Yeah. And I had an interview. Interesting. So it was really one of those mashup things. Um, and the way, you know, I think historical interpreting works differently uh, depending on which site you're at. So like the Freedom Trail is a very different experience because you're walking through Boston, like dealing with noise and traffic and trying to get a group of people through a city. I did not have to do that. um, My work was uh, site specific. So we had a museum. It was a highly timed experience, like doors opened automatically sort of deal. Oh, nice. Um, So uh, we were all, every person on site had a real life historical character. So someone who was, for the men, some, usually it was someone who was on the boats destroying uh, tea during the Boston Tea Party, party. And all the women were adjacent to them. So daughters, Of course, wives, like real them. life. Well, I mean, there <laughs> were no, yeah. the reality is there were no women destroying right. tea in colonial Boston. Right, right. And the reality uh, is that the women who knew about it, their job was to keep it a secret. Like right. that's just, that was actually what happened. Yeah, um, that's fair. So I played Priscilla Scale. Um, or was she a real person? She was a real okay. person, Phil Scully, um, whose father, John Scully, so this is also S-C-O-L-L-A-Y of Scully Square, okay. which still exists in Boston. Cool. Um, her father was a uh, selectman, so on a bunch of merchant councils and a merchant, and her, she goes on to marry Thomas Melville, mm-hmm. who was oh, on the wow. ships, who destroyed the tea, and is, she is the paternal grandmother of Herman Melville. Mm-hmm. Oh, Nice. Yeah, so Thomas Melville's story, I liked it because he um, came home, like one of the agreements was that you don't talk about like what happened on the Tea Party ship stays on the <laughs> you, don't, you don't talk about it, you don't right. brag about it. Like right. it, was, it was an act of treason. Like right. they were- It's a colonial fight club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Um, but uh, he came home and he took off his boots and found that there was tea. Um, and then how the story goes after that depends on who you're talking to the daughters of the american revolution story is that priscilla scully was the one who saved the tea however they were not married at that Mm -hmm. point there's no way that Mm -hmm. she was like thomas last night you came home and i found tea in your boots this morning because there was no way she was there unless she was a scandalous lady lady. um but (laughs) so but in reality, she probably did know about it. Sure. Um, but I was really excited about her as a character because not only did she have this um, connection to the people on the ships, and granted, they were probably more engaged at the time or promised in some way. They weren't actually married yet. Okay. But they got married within a year. Okay. Um, and her, with her father's tied to the merchant council, 
I was really interested in these, like, the fact that she had these sort of two polar uh, opposites almost. Okay. And that her father would have known what was happening. He definitely would have known, but he right. didn't partake. And this other person in her life was a merchant who did decide to partake in this. Right, right. Sort of that she had ties to it in multiple ways. It gave me as a performer multiple ways to talk about the story. Yeah, too. that's yeah, very cool. Absolutely. Though yeah, I'm, so I'm still a little stuck on boot tea. I feel like he should have just like <laughs> poured some boiling water over it and like, new well, thing, boot tea. So that's the thing. He yeah. kept it. So that's how the story so weird. continues to go. They yeah. kept it. Um, and then the old, uh, and then at the old state house, there is, so there is, I think, a vial of tea uh -huh. that is supposedly made from Got the tea it. that was in his boot. But they kept it for years. Oh, um, wow. the, fa fam the family kept right. it for years. Um, yeah, so I... <laughs> and then the one uh, black sheep was like, hey, I'm thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> Drank the evidence. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I will say, I had no interest in history before I got sure. this Um I sort of went in and I was very uh, transparent about that. And I said, yeah. I, I like learning. And I yeah. feel like mm -hmm. that's kind of what has kept me on the theater path in general is this like, I like learning new things. That's I like, awesome. um, I like figuring new things out and adding, adding new uh, skills and stuff to my repertoire. So I, I now actually really enjoy history um, because I fell victim to the way most people fall victim in school, unless you have like an amazing history teacher where yeah. it's just about memorizing things. Yeah. Whereas if you spin a story and you, start thinking about who is doing things and why they are doing them, not what they are doing and where they are doing them. All of a sudden, like this, this narrative comes out. And you're right. like, oh, and there's, you can force a point of view on a narrative. You can shift the narrative by looking at the person on the top of it versus the person right. on the bottom of it. Like right. it just, all of a sudden, like all of that creative nonfiction and and something like Hamilton, like right. you start to unwind what right. a story is and how it fits in history. Um, so I had a really fun time doing that. Um, and cool. also uh, I worked with a few ladies who are great friends of mine. Um, they sort of started spearheading the costuming or the wardrobe department. And so actually wardrobe became this little mini storytelling stuff that those of us who knew about it could add in. Um, like Priscilla was a, um, I also played her extremely high energy. Um, <laughs> I would like kind of bounce throughout my entire tour. Oh, wow. Um, That's a workout. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would sometimes come outside to my MOD and say, I don't, I think I'm going to do a 50% today. And they'd look <laughs> at me and go, 50% for you is like normal for yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Um, but uh, but so she was a high class. She was middle to high class. In okay. fact, most most of the people on the ships were middle to high class. Um, and so only middle to high class ladies were would wear white adornments or white garments. Interesting. That I mean, just think about it. Right. White gets white dirty. Gets dirty. Um, so I had a few pieces in my wardrobe that were white, or I had I had like pearls. I I sort of made I I made I started making a lot of my own sure, sure. pieces. I was I just going to ask you that. Didn't you make your own corset and stuff? Um, yeah, I have a pair of Whoa. stays. Yeah, yeah stays. Not, yeah, so corsets are later. Right. We, mm. all, wore, we all wore stays. Um, they're fully boned. Like, they're actually, when you get used to it, they're actually quite comfortable because the um, stays were more about posture, not about, like, right. stitching your uh, waist really right. tiny. But also 18th century garments, if you try to wear them without the correct under things, right. they don't work. Yeah. Um, like all mm. of the, 
all of the petticoats tied. And if you're trying to tie petticoats around your waist without sort of the helpful little shelf that yeah. happens when the uh, stays sort of flare out by your hips, it's really difficult. That makes to sense. Them on your body. Yeah. And everything was like pinned. And so you could actually pin into your stays in a way that you don't want to pin into your shift. Right. Or like catch your skin. Right. Huh. So I, so, and um, you can get like ready-made stays, um, but they're not comfortable because they're made, they're made like a one style fits most. Size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and as we said in the two teacups, which was our little wardrobe shop, <laughs> bodies are body shaped. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> you need, you need things that, and almost all 18th century garments were made for someone's body. Very um, cool. And so, yeah, so I have a pair of stays. They're not completely done. I will finish them because that's the kind of person I am. <laughs> um, but I made a bunch of petticoats, uh, a bunch of sort of tops, which we call jackets mm-hmm. um, or bed gowns. And uh, I, I handmade a bunch of caps, um, which, are, which are fussy little things. Um, <laughs> and and I, have, I have yards and yards of fabric to make an 18th century English gown which I think, again, I will make mostly because I'm that kind of person. Yeah. Um, and, and then you have a perfect Halloween costume for the rest of your life. Halloween costume for the rest of my life. <laughs> I also um, have, I, my, my friends in Boston still do interpreting. Um, sure. And you can do them at other events. So there's part of me that's like, that, that would be a fun yeah. hobby to do. Um, but for instance, my stays, um, the, they are, the outer fabric is a silk gold brocade. Mm. Um, whereas like, my friend Audrey, who played a shoemaker's wife, um, made a very plain pair of right. stays that are wool on the outside, right. wool or cotton. But but even if you were to put our two stays next to each other, there's an implicit class difference right. in that. Um, so those sorts of uh, decisions were fun. I would also make like incredibly frilly things, um, mostly because that was Priscilla's character, which is very very different from me. She had right. a lot of pink. <laughs> and that is not kt i can not assure you um, orange orange all the way <laughs> um, a lot of pink <laughs> a lot of shiny things um, and because she was upper class and that was sort of a little a little thing i could do and a little investment i made in my character because again my costumer brain started going right um, so it's it's a little uh, the intersections of my uh, former lives always seem to like yeah. come together. <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, it's not surprising to me at all because one of the things, because KT and I met, you know, in high school drama club and um, when we were working on Drood, which I talked about in my episode a couple weeks ago, um, oh, I we, I know, <laughs> but like KT and I and our two um, crushes at the time <laughs> would stay un- to, at school until like almost midnight sometimes oh. um, yeah. working on, no, no, no but we did we because like we had a, yeah. a woman who was the mother of one of um, the other or former yeah. like student yeah and she, she would would help she us ran the cost so she had the costume shop at yeah. a nearby um boarding school private school so they had right. a much bigger one yeah so this is the kind of this is the kind of high school i, I was i was a sophomore yep um and i i had i was in the chorus and i had like a featured dance part in the like weird opium dream ballet that that's right um, I about that part. and i was drewed uh in that but as a sophomore mm-hmm. 
somehow I ended up in charge of the entire costume mm-hmm. thing. What? So I like made co- like, and again, I didn't know what this was, but I like made costume plots for the entire show. Yeah. I like it was a weird. Um, the style of it was like. Uh, pseudo-Victorian, right. so like mm-hmm. there were things that went together that um, it was more about making an interesting palette and an interesting texture choice versus like historically accurate. Right, because um, it, and was it, was a, <laughs> it was high school. And we were using that, but it was like your typical public high school mm-hmm. musical, which means like there were tons of people in this yeah, show. Yeah, 30 to 40 mm-hmm. people. Yeah, like. and I think, I think only, I think everyone only had one outfit, which was yep. different than the previous year where we did My Fair Lady, and right. people had like three or four, depending which on was ridiculous. which number of um, musical numbers they were yep. in. Um, but yeah, so as a sophomore, I like, and I like had lists of like who was, um, to, like I had like costume captains of like who was taking care of which mm-hmm, costumes, mm-hmm. and like again, like not a senior person no, in yep. the drama club at all. Yeah, uh, but sort of spearheading this entire right. thing. And because and I, I was the stage manager, we ended up being stuck at the school late uh, together, and that's yep. kind of how we bonded. Yeah. Um. And then again, to give you a sense of who I was in high school, the next year we did. Um. You're a good man, Charlie Brown, which I auditioned for um, and did not and was not cast in. And so my response to this was that I costume designed it and built the costume. So I built all those instead of pulling them. Druid was at least a pulled show. I built all the costumes. I stage managed that show and I choreographed it. Yeah. All while while being a junior in high school doing honors level work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's, that's my, that's, I haven't changed too much. No, she's, yeah, (laughs) she's always been way more gung-ho than me. (laughs) And, but, you know, go ahead. I've learned how to manage, I've learned how to manage better. And that that actually working that way is completely unsustainable. Yes, Mm -hmm. totally. Oh, God, yeah. But But it is sort of where I came from. It is funny, too, because, I mean, the next show of that year, because Good Man Tried Brown was the uh, fall musical, so it was smaller, and then we did... Um, Little Shop of Horrors, and that's actually, even though it's kind of a show which we will not speak of because it was a terrible time in our lives for both of us, it is kind of what started you on your puppetry a little bit. It is, it is. So I will say that I had, I I had no idea what Little Shop of Horrors was before, Mm -hmm. before this show. So um, when we had our audition, like there was the audition form and there was a spot at the bottom that said like, are you interested in learning puppetry? And I think I might have been the only person mm-hmm. in the entire drama club of people who auditioned who checked yes. Yep. Um, so when the cast list came out and I saw that I was the Audrey Two Puppeteer, I was devastated. I like, I had, I was like inconsolable. Mm-hmm. I was so mad. I was so upset. And I felt complete, like, in my mind, it was that my director was didn't believe that I could be a performer and mm-hmm. so was hiding me mm-hmm. um, from oh, no. the audience. Like that's, you know, yeah. when you say you're inside a giant plant, yeah. like that's, yeah. what, that's what I um, interpreted it as. So for a while, I was like, can I be in some chorus numbers? Can mm-hmm. I like, can, do I have to be in this plant the entire time? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I kind of like went, through I was like going along and he had me in like all of the music rehearsals because he wanted me to um 
really hear everything that Dominic, who was the voice, like be as intimately acquainted with the music and how he was going to be saying and singing things as Dominic was. And he had me like animating a chocolate, like one of those like banned chocolate sell the boxes you sell chocolate. Oh, oh yeah. that's right. Oh my <laughs> goodness. He had me like in music rehearsal, like just practicing like listening. <laughs> of course I have, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. So at the time, I'm still a junior. I'm still doing honors level um, coursework. And I had a long, in, in telling of this story, the research paper has gotten to 50 pages. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was a 50 page long research paper, but it was a long research paper. Yeah. Um, and you had to like propose a topic. And I was going back and forth. And I was like, uh, you know, underwater robotic technology like uh, that explored the Titanic, homeopathic remedies, forensic science. And my mom, we're like driving down Main Street. And my mom, I was batting things back and forth. And she goes, so why don't you do puppetry? And I said, what? And she's like, well, you, you have to do this thing. And you really don't know anything about it. So why don't you research puppetry for your research paper? Um, and, you know, in her mom wisdom, it was a really great idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so one of the things that you had to do for this research paper was you had to interview three people. Um, and so Yukon, uh, which is, you know, a few towns over from where Stephanie and I grew up, um, has the only undergraduate and graduate puppetry program in the United States, at least at the time. Oh, wow. um, and so I so sort of found myself with this huge resource that I didn't realize was there. At the same time, I'm starting to like physically understand what this puppet is and what this puppet means and like how ex how exciting it actually was to be anim i had no i had no language for this at the time mm -hmm. but um to be animating this character this mm -hmm. huge character in this show um and and it was like it was the kind of performing experience that i i i never i don't know that i've ever had something like that yeah. as cool as yeah um because I just remember, uh, you know, after sitting in um, that little, we had a really little pot. I could just, <laughs> just sit, like, but yep. I still had to be holding my body weight up. So I was like yep. in this really weird crouch, um, waiting through like three musical numbers before Get It, before the end of the act one finale. Um, and I just remember uh, the guy who played Seymour going, all right, Tui, I'm off to Schmendrix to get some dinner, and I, and Audrey sort of wilt forward. And the audience reaction every night was like the most, because no one expected the right. plant to move. Right. It had been still for so long. Right. And I don't know how many people in Manchester, Connecticut know Little Shop of Horrors. So right. they might not have ever expected it to move mm -hmm. that way. Yeah. Um, so just the, the reaction of that was so electrifying. Um, and then the, I also have a, a dance background. So like moving in this way was not, the physical animation was unusual, but sort of this embodiment of things was not unusual for me. Right. Um, so the end of, we did get it way faster than it should ever be done. Ever yeah, because yeah. There was no, again, didn't have language for this, but there was no way that I could hit every syllable. Right. Um, because of how fast the lyrics were coming. Right. There's a reason it's slow on yeah. all the audio. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so it was great. And um, we, 
we had I had other things were going on, but Little Shop of Horrors was sort of the highlight of that time. Right. Um, I uh, I interviewed one of the people I interviewed for my project was uh, Bart Rokeburton, who is the still the head of the publishing department at UConn. This was before Skype or anything. Mm -hmm. He was in some country in Asia working on the Firebird. And I interviewed him over like iChat. <laughs> um, so I talked to him a lot about puppetry and like what it was and what it could do. Because he was like working. So I had this, my way into puppetry was totally through theater and not through TV. Right. So I was looking at things like Little Shop of Horrors and Avenue Q. I was looking at even stop motion puppets, uh, oh, like yeah. Corpse Bride, okay, um, and sort of Basil Twist, and and there was this um, awareness in my paper of like this more uh, abstract puppetry and mm -hmm. these sort of like how it could be used in a way that's not necessarily a character in a script. Um, and Bart was working on Firebird, the op the Firebird opera. So his opera and puppetry actually go really well together because they're both so heightened. Right. Um, so they can really support each other in that realm. Um, and I actually, I ended, I interviewed two grad students who only like a, two years ago did I realize those are people who are my friends now. <laughs> like, like we were working on something and I said, oh, I, I saw a balloon at, UConn and they go really that was our graduate project and I thought about it and I went I think I think I interviewed you guys for <laughs> a research paper that I did and they were like we don't really remember because we were like yeah. in graduate thesis mode and right. I went and I looked and I found and I That's found their names so <laughs> awesome um so you know, Bart got back from Asia. I, I had been bitten by the puppetry bug. Um, Martin Robinson, who uh, designed Audrey II and puppeteered the original one, sort of became this, like, really, uh, like, I wanted to meet him. And I, I don't remember saying this, but my parents remember very specifically me saying, one day I'm going to work with Martin Robinson. Mm. And uh, um, for people who don't know that name, who is that? So Martin Robinson uh, is a puppeteer. He's also, not only did he do Audrey 2, he's also Snuffleupagus um, and Telly Monster on Sesame Street. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he's and wait, did Martin do Audrey 2 in what, in the Broadway? Original, yeah. Original Broadway he, cast, okay. And I think he also was part of one of the revivals, but okay. he was the original puppeteer and he also designed Audrey 2. Nice. Oh, wow. So, uh, hey, you know, we Audrey did two in high school. <laughs> it was just not as good. Um, it was not as good. <laughs> Uh, but also, like, the plans for Audrey 2 come with, you can, like, rent them, too. We didn't use them, but right. Martin is also, like, a six-foot-tall man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who, like, you know, does karate and, like, is just sinewy and wiry and strong. And so there was no way, there is no way that any person who's not a six-foot-tall man yeah. operate his design. Right, right. Um, our design was good for what it needed to be. Yes. Didn't need to be anything more. Um, so I went to Bart and I showed him my paper and I said, I think I want to, um, I think I want to come to the undergraduate program. Mm -hmm. And he said, Well, uh, sure. He's like, Your paper, <laughs> I think my paper, and I showed him a video of um, Get It. Yeah. And I remember him saying to me, He was like, I really think that you did a good job of not trying to hit every syllable. Yeah. Um, that just happened. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But he liked it. He liked the performance and he liked my paper. And he said, if you want to come, you're in. So I applied to just UConn. Yeah. Luckily, not the binding one. 
Um, and I went to a new school my senior year where I sort of had a, just a different teacher set, different um, experience with uh, performing. We did You're in Town and I was Little Sally. You know, I just felt it was a very different kind of validation. Mm-hmm. And my dad sent in like the housing deposit, like a hundred bucks and mm-hmm. texted me about it. And I kind of freaked out. And I went, I went straight to the guidance counselor and it was a smaller school. So like he, he had all these connections and I said, I don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and go. so we fixed it yeah. and I emailed Bart and I said, uh, you know, thank you so much. I, I just realized that I don't, I don't really know enough about theater or the world to focus this narrowly yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and his response was no problem. If, if you find your way back to puppetry, I'm sure I'll see you in the next few years. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, went on this theater tangent, um, and that took me to Boston. Uh, and uh, the first theater job I had there was a wardrobe coordinator for the Lyric Theater. Um, so, you know, quick changes and doing people's laundry, but it was really nice to be in a theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I, I met some wonderful older actors who very generously sort of walked me through what being a professional actor looked like because mm-hmm. at a small liberal arts college, I didn't, I didn't know what actors equity was. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know when they said staple your resume and headshot together. I actually didn't know what that meant. <laughs> I, I like knew it mm-hmm. probably wasn't like a school paper, but I right. really had no idea. Um, so luckily I had these people who like walked, who like really taught me some of the professional industry things that I hadn't learned. And the, musical the spring musical for them the final show in their season was avenue q um and they didn't know if they were going to hire me to do wardrobe for that they hired me for the first two shows and then everything else was small enough that the assistant stage manager could also do wardrobe and so but i told them i was like i i've done puppets before (laughs) yeah um so so they hired me and i looked at the puppets which were nothing like i'd ever worked before because hand and mouth like sesame street style was actually something I had never really <laughs> before. Um, and I looked at them and I said, you know, if, I, uh, if I'm if i gonna do this well, cause I like doing my job well, I should probably know, figure out how these puppets work, especially mm-hmm. if I have to like fix them. Right, anyway. right. Um, so I looked and there was this class called Build Your Own, How to Build Your Own Furry Monster class uh, offered by Puppet Showplace in Brookline. Puppet Showplace in Brookline, just to like, that for a second is like a really wonderful puppet theater that is like the longest standing one in the country and like every theatrical organization they are struggling right now yes yeah. so if you like puppetry and just like can throw 25 dollars their way if you search puppet show place brookline massachusetts like they're they're a really good organization to just like give your absolutely to, okay um in this time um so i walk in and um my friend, my now friend, John, is who makes puppets under the name Little's Creatures, is uh, <laughs> building, is like teaching. And I say, you know, and they ask like, why you're here? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm doing wardrobe on um, Avenue Q. And I, so I thought I'd figure out how to build a puppet. And um, John goes, oh, I'm doing a boot camp for that. And my friend Roxy, who's the artistic director from Puppet Showplace, comes out from the back and is like, oh, I'm uh, puppet directing that. So that was just a really fun experience. I learned yeah. how to make a little monster who's in the other room. Um, <laughs> they have him. Um, we might need to take a picture of yeah, him later. <laughs> um, and so he, so I did that and um, 
John came in and and did the one day boot camp and like I was they let me be a part of it as the wardrobe person but also as a performer because I was like mm -hmm. I'm interested in this mm -hmm. and uh the director liked me and you know was supportive in that way and um John's just talking about like people who he's worked with and blah 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 Martin blah 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 and I kind of like stopped <laughs> the entire rehearsal at that point I go, wait Martin like like Martin Robinson Martin and he was like, yeah I worked with him and I, I <laughs> totally uncool freaked <laughs> out for a second and and like composed myself but but got really excited that because I didn't realize how small the puppetry community actually is mm -hmm. um so I worked on Avenue Q it was a lot of fun it, that sort of was the snowball that restarted this um, puppetry trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, I got involved in Puppet Show Place, took adult classes. Um, there are these things called Puppet Slams, which are uh, short form cabaret uh, nights of puppetry. So instead of poetry, it's puppetry. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. They happen all over the country. There's a lot of digital ones going on now. That's awesome. Um, and it's like, you know, it's an opportunity to make a short piece. Um, we call it and one of the sort of conferences too short to suck so like under five minutes and people, that's amazing like, like even if it's not the best piece of theater like it'll still be interesting and people will still be with you right um, and you'll still have the audience like cheering you on so I did some of those and um, I my friends kept saying John kept saying you need to go to the O'Neill which is the O'Neill puppetry the national puppetry conference at the O'Neill theater center um, in Waterford, Connecticut. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I'll, I'll go. And I was still trying to be an actor. Um, and as certain, and then I was, I took a class um, at Puppet Show Place with the resident artist, Brad Schur, and he showed us these videos at the top of the class that were like, well, what, what to show us different kinds of puppetry. And there was this group called Hugo and Inez, um, and they're a duo and they're, brilliant like I don't I don't even know how to describe their puppetry um but they use their body like a body part to become the character like the one that I really love is uh Hugo turns his knee into a little man he puts a shirt a, a um, shirt on it a butt collar shirt and like a red nose and and his hands are through the shirt and he's playing the ukulele and then Stop he it. takes off his hat and looks for um looks for money and then he the nose shifts so that he's looking up at Hugo and Hugo like does a like, I don't know. And he comes back. And so it's just this brilliant little thing. It's, I love it. it. It's oh, all, wow. you can find it on the internet. Um, and, and so I, at the end of that, I was like, I want to do that. Like, I want, I like that kind yeah. of history. And so I kept, I would look at the O'Neill and then, um, I don't know, 2015, Hugo and Inez were coming to the O'Neill to teach. Mm. And I hadn't, I wasn't going to go. I was, yeah. I was like, I'm going to the National Puppetry Festival that year. So I'm not going to go to the conference. I saw it and I was like, I think I need to. So I applied and um, I got in and I was really excited to go. And John, like, finds either, I can't remember if he found me or if he texted me. And he goes, okay. He's like, I was going, I considered just letting you find out on your own, but that figured that wouldn't go well. <laughs> um, Marty's going to be in the class with you. <laughs> uh, and I was like, okay, great. 
that's that's wonderful um, <laughs> i'm cool i'm cool, <laughs> cool. So I, I had to get to the first conference late because i was like finishing teaching a stage combat class um and i walk in and you know <laughs> he's just he's on the other side of the room they're already doing exercises he's like he has like long ring gray ringlets of hair <laughs> Um, and so we, I ended up sitting next to him in the like circle of like doing like hand exercises. And he, there was something about the rhythm of what we were doing that wasn't quite clicking. And I, and I was like explaining it to him and just kept like punching my arm. <laughs> like, oh, that's good. That's good. And so I finally went, okay, I just need to get this out of the way. Yeah. Class was over. And I said, so Marty, I just, I'm, I'm a friend of John's. He knew John. Yeah. And I said, so I just need to get this out of the way and tell you that um, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of Audrey too. And because he, he, ha he says fans of Audrey too are very different than fans of mm -hmm. Stephanie. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> and, and, he, and, he was, and I was like, and I just like, you're the reason that I, Audrey too is the reason I came into puppetry in the first place. So like, you're the reason that I'm here. And that was out of the way and it was done. Mm -hmm. And like we, the week went on and we had to like make, we kept having exercises in class with pairs of people. And one of them I ended up being paired with Marty, which was wonderful. And we made this little piece together that we ended up performing in um, the shows at the end of the conference. And it was like, oh man, I like, I'm working with Marty Robinson. This is amazing. Um, so I went back to Boston and I think at this point, maybe I stopped trying to act. Um, I was, I had a lot of uh, difficulty with um, casting mm -hmm. in the sense that um, I am half Japanese mm -hmm. um, and half white. Mm -hmm. And I think I look more on the white end of things. Um, and this was sort of at the beginning of um, diversifying casting. And all of a sudden, I wasn't being called for anything except for Asian roles. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Even if I didn't audition, people mm -hmm. knew that I was, I had Asian ancestry. And so mm -hmm. I was all of a sudden, like only being called for Asian roles. And I was never being cast. And at a certain mm -hmm. point, whether it's true or not, what happened in my head was that the reason I wasn't being cast was because I didn't look Asian enough. Mm -hmm. I have, mm -hmm. I have a double eyelid and I have a bridge to my nose. So sort of the like stereotypical Asian face things mm -hmm. aren't going on in my face. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. Um, I, Tyler, I, I, Tyler's I, in the same boat as you. I know. Uh, <laughs> so, so whether or not it was true that it was because of how I looked, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I was like, the only reason I'm being called, one, the only reason I feel like I'm being called for this is because of who my mom is. Mm -hmm. And then the only reason that I feel like I'm not being cast for this is because who my dad is, mm -hmm. yeah. which has nothing to do with me yes. as a performer. It has nothing yes. to do with my skill or my ability to be a human on stage. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. So I stopped acting because I was just done. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that in puppetry, it didn't matter what I looked like. It mm -hmm. mattered what I could do. Mm -hmm. not, not just for the fact that like often puppeteers aren't seen, but that really what, what you need is you need someone who has the skill to animate mm -hmm. the puppet. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, that, and it's happened this way as time went forward is that my, the fact that I'm female and the fact that I am a female of color works to my advantage because it, there are people actively looking to put those people of that demographic mm -hmm. in a room that has been mostly white men. Mm -hmm. And so there is this like, again, active diversification, but I'm never going to get into a room as a puppeteer if I can't do my job. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what I look like. If mm -hmm. I can't do my job, mm -hmm. then like, I'm not going to get there. Mm -hmm. 
So I really, I really liked that. And so puppetry became sort of my own, what I was doing as a performer. Mm-hmm. I was trying to make small pieces. I was trying to be in things. Um, but uh, you get directors who've never done puppetry before and they need an actor who can puppeteer. They aren't mm-hmm. going to cast a puppeteer. They're going to cast an actor mm-hmm. and they can teach them. Oh, yeah. Puppetry. Mm-hmm. In the same way that, you know, like if you need an opera singer, you're just going to cast someone who can kind of sing and teach right. you do opera. Cause right. That's, because it, it doesn't That's matter. That's how that works. Yep. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> years, of tra- years of training, investment in a skill, and you think that you can teach someone to do what I've spent years trying to hone in six weeks. Right. Sure. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. Um, <laughs> but so as this, so I went, I kept going to the O'Neill, um, and which was a really wonderful sort of um, figuring out how I wanted to make puppetry, learning from these sort of great puppeteers. Through all this, I ran into Bart again, which was fun. And that I is super of, cool. First time I saw him again, I said, hi, I don't know if you remember me, but I wrote this and he like finished the story for That's me. That's awesome. He was like, I told you I'd see you again. Yeah. Uh-huh. He recognized my name, or, uh-huh. but, but it was a cool, like, you're right. Yeah. That's yeah. how cool the world of puppetry is. Um, so one of the O'Neills, I... Um, I was talking to Marty because he was there again and he said well what's next what are you doing and I was like well, I you know I'm just sort of trying to figure stuff out um and he said I was like I really want to be in things like I've been trying to make my own stuff but I I really miss being in things and I I kind of want to be in other people's work and like learn what I like doing and what I don't like doing before trying to really make a lot of my own and he goes what are you doing this winter because uh, he had written a musical um, and he was workshopping it at the O'Neill that winter. So I said, nothing. I'm coming, I'm coming with you. <laughs> um, so it was called, it was called All Hallows Eve, and, uh, we workshopped it. We had a great time. Um, and, and then after that, he was like, we're going to try to do it in New York. And I was like, okay, just let me know. I'll see if I can, I, I'll see if I can, you know, make that work for me. Um, again, I had sort of like a, some difficult life things through this and was trying to figure out how to have a job that like offered me financial security and gave me space and time to make things that wouldn't make me miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so I was like, maybe I was like, if I get an office job, like I'm not going to be able to go to New York for six weeks. Um, so I was like, just let me know and I'll see, I'll see what happens. Um, between that, uh, I auditioned for a company up in Vermont called Sandglass Theater, um, and they special they do they make all sorts of puppet theater. But something that they really do is they focus on making content for adults, mm-hmm. so adult theater productions. Um, and they were auditioning performers of color for who sang and puppeteered for um, a show called Babylon, A Journey of Refugees, mm. which is a show that. Uh, takes five stories of people who are fleeing their homes and presents those stories in song and with puppetry amidst sort of other scenes that are the performers having conversations about immigration and refugees that we have in this country. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of this, uh, it explores not just these journeys, but also um, how we talk about this crisis Mm -hmm. here. And and the often not great conversations that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, they were looking for a tenor. I am not a tenor. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but, but they said, you know, I, I kind of was like, if it's a high enough tenor, I could, te I could maybe pull it off. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Um, so they said, you know, we're, we're, we're thinking about having sort of like a swing understudy person anyways, because we've, we've had to do some scheduling stuff that um, we had to cancel because one of our performers couldn't do it. And, you know, there might be some shifting within the cast in the next two years. So um, they, they were like, we'll be in touch. So they, as I was, this is as I was trying to find an office job and subsequently like realized I really was trying to find an office job at the point when the six years of working to try to figure out how to do this as a performer was starting to pay off. Mm -hmm. And so like trying to be like, I'm going to have a real job as that was happening was really not good for my mental state. Right. So I started yeah. like doing things like catering and temping and just really, right. really focusing on um, like gig work and, and stuff that I could say no to. Um, so they called me and I went up to do uh, one of their like three week resident, uh, two week long intensive rehearsals with them um, as the sort of stage manager of the rehearsals to learn the show. Marty was like, we're doing this in October in um, uh, New York uh, for 2019, right? No. 2018? It was recently. No, it was 2019. Yeah. Yeah, it was 2019. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody understands what time is anymore. This is the year where time um, has stopped. <laughs> time has stopped. Um, and then I, I was offered uh, an ensemble member role in the Babylon show, as well as a part in the three-person ensemble to develop the um, children's accompanying piece called Rock the Boat. Um, and being in New York was great um i worked i worked with marty like that like, <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. that's sort of the like i i worked with him but i wasn't just um in the i wasn't just in the ensemble oh no have you seen a trend here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i ended up i ended up choreographing the entire show Whoa. um and it had happened because in when we did the workshop there was like one piece that was like this dance fight and i did fight choreography and i have dance experience so it it made sense for me to like help uh, the two performers like really just choreograph it so they weren't trying to do it on the in like inside the, the movement. Mm -hmm. um, so we thought like, oh, it'd be that and like one, one or two other numbers, all of us, including me, forgetting that it's a musical. <laughs> um, and so I ended up state doing, uh, because the, the music was two thirds of the show. Right. Um, and so I ended up choreographing and helping to stage the majority of the show, um, which was great. I actually really loved it because, I mean, if I had, if I could do it again, I would actually not be in it. I would rather just be on the outside and sure, be able yeah. to do that creative, uh, creative director process. Um, but I really loved it because I had always been like, I think I'd be good at directing. I mm -hmm. think I'd be good at being the outside person. Mm -hmm. And this was like very concrete confirmation that I, I do know how to look at things from the outside. Yeah. And then I, I enjoy it too. Like I really enjoy helping craft the creative process that way. Right. Um, but it was a blast. It was like, you know, like a weird little dream come true of like 16 year old Katie being like, I'm going to work with Martin Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> and being like, and now I have, and now he's like, my friend and yeah. you know like colleague and you know like i can i have his phone number and email and can like 
call him for things, which is like that. That's what blows up. Great. So you can you're gonna set us up, and we can talk to him in a future episode. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Really appreciate um, that I, offer. Yeah. You didn't have to do it, but I mean, I, we really appreciate it. Um, I do know a lot of Stephanie Street people. Hey, um, I'm just saying that'd be cool. Um. So, <laughs> so I. Uh, so yeah, so I, I'm still working with um, Sandglass. Uh, right before right before the world shut down, mm-hmm. I had been in Vermont for three weeks learning Babylon. We were about to embark on a three to four week tour of the West Coast uh, to do that. Oh, and then I was going to go, we didn't go back, but I was going to go back for two weeks to finish Rock the Boat and then embark on this um, right. tour with both shows on the West Coast. Um, so I'm still a part of Sandglass, and we're still trying to figure out how, how that all works. Um, but yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of what, that's a very long story. Of that was life. so fascinating. No. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's good. I'm glad you kind of ended there because, you know, um, uh, we are kind of talking to people, at least right now, about, how COVID kind of ruined yeah. your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and I know your big thing, and I think a lot of people in your situation, um, or like in our situation in general, but you happen to be stuck in limbo right now too, because you had plans that are now not happening. Yeah. So between being in New York for six weeks and then knowing that I was going to Vermont for a long time, for at least five weeks, and then to the West Coast. I had been living in Boston, paying rent, and I was like, paying rent right now just like really makes very little sense, especially because I had, I had pretty much realized I didn't want to live in Boston anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the theater community was not what I wanted. Um, the puppetry opportunities were there, there is a puppetry community in Boston, and the opportunities were there, but there were few enough of them that it, it was hard. There were almost too many of us to like really have any spread of opportunity sure um and i wasn't excited about anything that was happening in boston theatrically the the shows that i found the most exciting were the ones at the american repertory theater in cambridge where i also i worked as the front of uh, front of house staff um but they were they had a very different audience in mind they Mm -hmm. were not they were not making theater for boston audiences Mm -hmm. they were making theater for new york audiences Mm -hmm. um and being in new york for six weeks i was like this is where i want to be this is where the I have, I have really good friends in Boston, but the thing that was different about New York was I was, my group of people there are all at a similar point in their life. Mm-hmm. They're not married. They're trying to figure out how to make this free, freelancing creative life work. They're doing atypical schedules. So like seeing them was really easy. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a lot of my friends in Boston have a more typical, have a standard work life. Mm-hmm. So when I'm like, but I'm working nights and weekends, mm-hmm. Um, all, it became hard to see, to see them. Um, I see them a lot more now by video than, you know, yeah. than I did when I lived there because, um, cause I'm not working and they're not working. So I made this decision, a very calculated decision to move home, mm. um, so that I didn't have to pay rent. I was going to go off on these tours that were going to, you know, pay a good amount of money that I could then save or throw towards some debt so that Mm -hmm. the debt lessened. And then I was going to get, and then I I knew that I would have the summer off and I was going to get a summer job, uh, hopefully like a not minimum, 
wage paying a summer job, but a summer job and work. And then a friend of mine's lease was up at the end of October. So I was going to work and I was going to move and we were going to find a place for November 1st. And in that was the plan. New York City. In New York City. Okay, nice. Brooklyn. Right. That was the plan. That is not the plan anymore. <laughs> um, and, you know, one, that chunk of uh, that work that was going to pay me mm-hmm. went away mm-hmm. um, through no fault of anyone. Mm-hmm. The ability to get a job that's not retail mm-hmm. or um, grocery worker mm-hmm. here is not easy especially Mm -hmm. when you don't have any connections Mm -hmm. because I just moved here Mm -hmm. um my mom is in the higher risk category so I mean so I just need to be careful so while part of me is like just go get a job at Trader Joe's right now like just go like structure the day earn some money the the risk actually does not outweigh the benefit of that does not right the risk risk. no no totally not um so and like I kept saying that in like March or April, I was like, well, I was going to be trying to figure out how to do a work from home remote thing anyways. Um, I was going to have to do that at the end of the tour because the goal was also to figure out how to have remote work that could support this performing. Right, right. Especially because I was still going to be working with Sandglass and I was still going to be going on tour. And the other thought about moving to New York and having a roommate was that it's much easier to sublet. In New York. Yes. It's much easier to find someone to be like, I'm gone for a month. Mm-hmm. Here's a furnished room, yep. you know, and not completely just be shoveling money into a place that I'm not living in. Right. Um, so all of that, I have yet to really find um, a remote thing. I have not been looking as hard as I need to. Um, because the world is difficult. Yes. And yep. my, brain is, my brain is difficult. Sometimes. Yeah. And, um, and the anxiety and the uncertainty around everything actually makes it very difficult for me to try to find a solution. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so my life has, uh, in more ways than one, really, really stopped. Yeah. Um, and, and sort of in a way that it's like, I actually don't know when it's going to start again because Mm -hmm. the other work that i do that i have done in the past which is like catering Mm -hmm. um theater front of housework Mm -hmm. even like doing a temp job where you go into an office Mm -hmm. like you know someone's maternity leave like that kind of stuff is not happening right now yeah yeah um and so like i'm i'm sort of in this place that i you know i know it's not unique to me where i'm like okay what also, like, how do I market my skills that I know I have to people on the other side of a computer yep. who are looking, who are the run on remote work now is also probably very different than what it has been. Totally. So, like, how do I, do I use Upwork? Do I use Fiverr? How do I, how do I try to find these gigs? Do I, re, do I want to try to tutor kids in China to speak English? What is the schedule of that like? Mm-hmm. You know, like, if I am dealing with, um, you know, I've been dealing with anxiety and depression since I was 16. In one of those jobs, like, what happens if I cannot mm-hmm. get myself out of bed in the morning? Mm-hmm. How do I, how do I know that I'm in a stable enough place that I will get myself out of bed to do right. this? Because 
that doesn't feel like right. what I'm doing right now. Yeah. yeah. And being in your parents' home, your old childhood home is a blessing and a curse because like, you know, thank goodness you're home and you don't have to pay rent and, and mm-hmm. you have a safe space, but you're also a 31 year old woman who is living mm-hmm. in her parents' house and they have their own yeah. routines and it's not yeah. a conducive place necessarily to remain an adult in the, in the yeah. independent way yeah. that, that okay. one does. Yeah. Totally. I've definitely been there before. And it's like, you know, I'm really lucky that I get, you know, I get along great with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of have the entire upstairs to myself. So like my brother's old room mm-hmm. has become my office, whatever mm-hmm. that means. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but it, it, it's comfortable here. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. as much as I hate it, it's also comfortable. Yeah. And I've said to a lot of people, I've been like, you know, I'm really grateful that I don't have a fire under my ass to like the need fire of like, I need to pay rent and so right. I need to find a job. But because I don't have the need fire, it makes it so much harder yep. yeah. to try totally. and get my act together. Um, and try to like stop procrastinating and being like, well, I'll do that after this one thing is done. And then right. never doing the one thing right. that is the benchmark. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm going, I am going back up to Sandglass. You know, we're trying to be very safe about it to do like a week's worth of work on one of the projects. And, um, but that involves a week of quarantine on my part. And so part of me is like, yeah, so I, I mean, I'm not going to try to, I really shouldn't try to do anything until I get back from Sandglass mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I mean, very realistically, because we're going to be working really long days and mm-hmm, anything I mm-hmm. establish is going to be very hard to keep up for that one week. Right. Right. But, um, but also I've just, I just put it off long enough that that is now an excuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I'm really just dealing with the procrastination monster uh, mm-hmm. on top of the anxiety of the world right now, you know, which is, I know everyone's dealing in, everyone feels it with it differently, but like, you know, like if someone has been actively dealing with an anxiety disorder for the mm-hmm. last, like, like very actively dealing with it for the last two to three years, mm-hmm. it's like, this is not very different than what I've been doing, but also different in that I have no distractions. Yep. There is no world to distract me from my own brain. There is no world to demand that I get out of bed and go Mm -hmm. to work because I have to. Yeah. You know, and like even being here, there's no need for me to go to the grocery store. Right. I don't have to cook dinner. Like, you know, these sorts of things that were incredibly regulating, as much as I didn't want to do them, um, like were very real. I don't have a gym that I can go to. Mm-hmm. I like kicked, I, I had a really great kickboxing gym, like down, you know, down the street from my apartment. And it was a huge release. And like, mm-hmm. I don't have that. And yeah. all of these things that some of them would have gone away anyways, like needing to go to the grocery store. Um, but other things, like I fully intended to find a gym when I got here. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, nope. Yeah. yeah, I'm not Terrible going idea. to pay for other people's sweat. <laughs> no, oh, no. God, no. <laughs> not paying money I don't have to go to yeah. a place other people's sweat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's felt like another recession for us who depend on working in the arts and working in, like I said, retail. I was working in the service industry, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's like nothing. We we literally had both walls go down simultaneously, which yeah. I understand it's a huge pandemic. But all of us are sitting at home with our thoughts. Yeah. Thinking, okay, well, what the fuck do I do now? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 
And like, you know, I think I've talked to one of my friends about this, that like, especially for the millennial generation, mm -hmm. there's this like late twenties, early thirties where you're like, okay, you know, the thing that I was trying, the way that I was trying to do things, not even the thing I was trying to do, but the way I was trying to do things, I don't want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to make a shift, whether it's a, a complete one, 180 and be like, you know what, actually the thing I was doing is not that or being like, no, I do want, this is not me, but. No, I do want to find the relationship that will be marriage and kids. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I wanted that, but I do. And now that I'm 30, this is, you know, this is something that I, I want to prioritize. Or, you know, I've been doing the freelance thing and I realize I want financial security, that that's actually more important to me than this right. creative pursuit. Right. Or, which is what I did, I realized that financial security is actually subservient to right. the creative pursuit. Yep. And that as oh, much yeah. as the freelance lifestyle is a complete trigger yeah. for my mental state, mm -hmm. my, my anxiety brain, I'm really unhappy. Like not just dissatisfied, but like incredibly unhappy mm -hmm. when I know that that's not the center of my life. Mm -hmm. That like yeah. making things and telling stories and giving myself the space and the opportunity to do that if that's not the center of my life, I'm incredibly unhappy. Yeah. Like I thought that I would not go back to theater for a little while. Yeah. And uh, like two or three years ago. And it just, I was unhappy for so many reasons. And when I realized that that was one of the reasons that I was unhappy, it just like really shifted. Mm -hmm. Again, I was like, why am I trying to create, what am I doing? Am I trying mm -hmm. to get an office job for two to three years to save money so that mm -hmm. I can then go and be a creative person yeah. mm -hmm. like that doesn't doesn't work for me yeah. I, I think that's a very i think that's a very valid thing to do right, right. but like yes. it doesn't work for me right. yeah. um i was i was at a temp job that could have turned into a had the opportunity to turn into a real job and i completely sabotaged myself in that yeah i like because there was the part of me that was screaming you don't want to do this and i kept like being like no that's not true yeah yeah. Because remember how you talked about financial security? Remember how you talked about that actually gives you more time and space to be creative? But but what it does is that it just like stifles me so yeah. much that I, I can't and maybe in a few years I will change my mind again. Right. And that's the other thing I've been telling myself. I changed my mind once. I can change my mind again yeah. and okay. say totally no, loud. Yep. Yeah. No, financial security is what you want right now. And that's okay to prioritize. Right. Um, and so, but being in this place where you're like, no, I shifted because also my career had momentum. And I was like, I, I have these things that are I'm actively performing on my resume. I have a bunch of connections in New York that solidified when I was there working on this show. Being like, oh, I have people who know freelance gigs in New York who can help get my name on lists for things. Yep. And like all of that, I, I felt really good that I was like building up this momentum to finally be in a city that would actually take, that would actually give me the opportunity to use the variety of skills that I've right. built up over the Absolutely. years. And where I feel like I could thrive as a jack of all trades in a way that I didn't feel like I could thrive that way in Boston. Right. It was just a little too small. I couldn't walk into a room where someone didn't know me. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in New York, I could walk into a room as one thing and then walk into a different room as another and be fairly certain that I could have a clean slate. In yeah. Both. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. 
Um, we're getting tight on time, but I do uh, want to know if um, you have anything you want to promote or talk about. I know I'm curious about a certain project you've been working on, but Ooh. I don't want to uh, push <laughs> well, it. <laughs> well, by the time this airs, it yeah. should be open. Yay! Yay. <laughs> All right, it's, you said it. We're gonna air it. So that's why I said it. Um, so, so part of what my like plan, <laughs> COVID dealing, alternate, my alternate life plan, not alternate life plan, but part of my plan was I'd been making, I for about a year I had had these like little four inch um, cross stitch pieces that were phrases or words from like my favorite books. So like Mischief Managed or You're Just As Sane As I Am, uh, Dinah Fash from Outlander. Uh, I have things from more obscure YA series like The Raven Cycle and The Lunar Chronicles um, and stuff like that. But I had was like, no, okay, now's the time to like really do it. So I've been, cro I had been cross stitching for like a month no, like three months. And yeah. I finally got to the point where I was like, I need to stop making them and start like figuring out how to have the Etsy store open. Yeah. So that's been, um, I've been procrastinating. Because <laughs> um, I, I also really, I was looking at it as like, I'm starting my own small business, not just mm -hmm. I'm going to throw some things up and then mm -hmm. learn the hard way what does and doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So trying to start a step ahead I also have to learn what doesn't doesn't work right so hopefully that will be oh that no not hopefully that will be open yes, um, yes manifest it will be open in the next two weeks um and we'll see how it goes we'll see if Good. it's a, a side gig that will actually just sort of work and what is it going to be called so people can look for it um, and we'll it's called, include it on our social but quote stitch studio quote stitch nice. studio okay yeah Right. And I'll give you the URL once you yeah. because yeah. Uh, you don't get one until it's <laughs> <laughs> That's totally fine. <laughs> but that's good. Yeah. Um, that's but, uh, I I was gonna ask you what was what was next before the, the cross stitch idea, which yeah. I think is gonna be awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, is there uh, anything else you a year from now you hope to to accomplish whether it's in the arts whether it's your your small business or whether it's something personal what's something you you want to either be better at or accomplish or just succeed in a yeah. year from this bullshit 2020 yeah well i hope that in uh september 2021 um i'd really like to have another plan mm -hmm. like like maybe before september but realistically probably around september mm -hmm. but just sort of another in the same way I had a plan of like, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to work and then I'm going to move um, to just sort of be able to have that roadmap mm -hmm. again. Um, Cause right now there, it just doesn't feel useful to me course, to make right, a roadmap. Right. Um, I would like to have figured out the remote work thing. Yeah. Um, however, that, that <laughs> um, I, these are like really amorphous things. Of like, okay. Yeah. But basically I'd like to have my non-performing life more figured out sure to make so that when performing starts again yeah. when we can be in rooms and ha have rehearsals and have audiences when that all happens i'm better prepared to support to yeah to support myself throughout that yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah 
Any uh, last minute bits of advice or things that um, you think are important for either uh, fellow arts workers or hopefully maybe non-arts workers that might be listening? Uh, um, the biggest piece of advice that was useful to me that I have not been following lately but, um, was came from uh, one of my friends who is a fitness trainer out in California, um, the fitness alchemists. And she basically wrote this email that was into her subscribers. That was basically like, set the bar just as high as you can step over it. There's no need to jump for anything right now. Um, and when I was able to do that and just, being able to like get again feel that sense of momentum of like no i i'm accomplishing the things i set out to do this week it wasn't a, a huge amount of things it was incredibly manageable and then i made the mistake of of ratcheting up my manageable until it wasn't and then starting to feel that silly spiral of not doing not getting done what i wanted feeling bad about it just setting the exact same goal not getting what I wanted, mm -hmm. feeling bad about it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that for me, that was a really good piece of advice. Yeah, um, I like that. Especially like in terms of creation. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. No, you spend three hours this week thinking, like watching some videos or things. Right. You don't have to make an entire piece of theater this week. Like, right. Spend a few hours, write for a few hours go for three walks this week yeah you know like instead of setting those like i'm gonna jump for it yeah because yep. right now like i'm not mentally equipped to jump for it yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah my therapist always says any movement forward is still movement forward yep. Absolutely. Yeah. so yeah. yeah so and i you know setting set the bar as high as you can step, step over it, it. I like because that. the sense of accomplishment when you do that is just totally it's still great it's still great yeah. Um, and I think the, it's a piece of advice that has been um, given by a lot of people and is always hard to hear and do yourself, but mm -hmm. like, be gentle, be compassionate with yourself, mm -hmm. you know, like what works for other people, what other people's okay is, is not what yours is. Mm -hmm. and, that's yeah. okay. and you don't have to be other people's productive. You mm -hmm. don't have to be other people's dealing with it. Mm -hmm. You just have to... Mm -hmm do what works for you yeah absolutely well katie you're the best and i love you and this was too. awesome <laughs> thank you so much for sitting down and chatting I was yeah so... no problem um okay we will talk to you soon and i guess that is the end of episode four yeah we're, we're big fans of awkward goodbyes yeah yeah podcast, so if you so. would like to join uh, us really <laughs> uh, i mean i think i'm here anyways yeah. no, no <laughs> but uh anyways you've been listening to pretend world's real people um please make sure that you are following us on our social media we are on instagram and facebook um, both of those are at pwrp podcast um, we are also, if you're listening to us on Podomatic, um, you can be listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Um, so you don't have to, you know, continually go to our page or whatever. You can always, um, subscribe and, uh, like us on those apps. And actually the more you do that, the better ratings we'll get and more, yeah. more people we'll get, which will be great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, also, while you're on the episode, uh, just take a look at some of our show notes we have. 
because for each guest that we have on the show, we'll have tags to everything they mention as far as new projects coming up or organizations they're affiliated with. So you can give them a follow as well. Maybe find something that you might be interested also in. Uh, in addition to that, if you guys would like to be, I'm sorry, if you gals and guys would like to be a part of the Aww. show, uh, <laughs> please send us an email at pwrp.pod at gmail.com uh, so we can get back to you as soon as possible and possibly schedule some sort of Zoom-based interview and have you be part of the show. Or if you're listening to this and it's like 2022, hopefully by then it's not going to be Zoom-based and we could meet you in person. Yeah, and we'll be driving Teslas. Yeah, totally, because we'll be <laughs> so rich by then. Sponsorships. <laughs> Twix, you can sponsor us. I won't be mad. I choose but both instead of Twix. giving us money, they're giving us just candy for oh, the rest yeah. of our lives, and we end oh, up losing money because we have to go to the dentist so much. I mean, we could build a perfectly good mansion out of that. <laughs> that caramel lasts forever. Man, uh, we never know how to wrap up an episode. <laughs> no, no. So in, in in thanks to Twix and every other candy, uh, here is an awkward goodbye. Bye. Bye.